Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Jeff Gold to the show. Jeff Gold is founder and CEO of Nexus, a plastic-to-oil conversion company utilizing advanced designs and technology to achieve high-energy efficiencies, oil yield, and high-quality chemical feedstocks. Under Jeff's leadership, Nexus has advanced quickly to become the global leader in sustainable circular molecular recycling. Prior to starting Nexus, Jeff founded and is president of a 30-year-old technology-based high-hazard chemical remediation, engineering, and management firm currently serving governmental and industrial clients around the globe. Jeff is the named inventor on over 30 patents that helped propel the specialized company to its world-class reputation. Jeff, how are you doing today? Oh, Raj, I appreciate you asking. I'm doing just great today. How are you? I, I assume it's, uh, it's a good day if we're all here. Jeff, it's a great day. I'm down in Dallas and things are going very well for a Monday. Well, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm based here in Atlanta. And uh, like everybody else in the country, I think it's a, it's a bit on the warm side. But uh, other than that, I can't <laughs> complain. It is. So Jeff, this may sound like a strange question to start with, but I was doing some research and I came across it. So I have to ask. It said, there's a quote, my wife gave me a small plaque as a gift recently that simply said, hard things are hard. Can you share the background on that? <laughs> I'm just curious to where you found that. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's that's a true story. I mean, uh, last Christmas, uh, she she gave me that little plaque, and it, it does, in fact, say hard things are hard. I think it's because um, in what we're doing here with the chemical recycling and converting waste plastics to oil, um, it's genuinely hard. And And I think... Beyond just our little niche here, uh, I think most times you'll you'll see for great inventions and great innovations that they don't just come easily. They they take work, they take perseverance, they take grit. I think, in other words, and when you're trying to do something that's hard, you know, whether it be going to the moon or or commercializing chemical recycling. It's just hard. It, 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 it's hard. It's, it's harder than most people think. You know, I think today we are really enmeshed and indoctrinated into the soundbite kind of world and how things just seem to happen and come very easily. And when they don't, you know, everybody gets frustrated. But to, to get meaningful things done really is hard. I mean, I tell people that, you know, converting waste plastics into oils, I said, you know, you can do this in your kitchen. You really can. Um, and it's not that hard to do. You can get a couple drops of oil and there you go. But to do things on a commercial or on an industrial scale is uh, is hard. And and that's that's the origin of that plaque. And, and she sees me come home each night and I'm usually stewing over some 
problem here or there and, and trying to figure something out. And, and I think she just thought that was uh, an appropriate, uh, appropriate plaque to get me. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, recently I've really taken to reading books about um, inventors and people from the turn of the century. The last book I finished was The Wright Brothers. And then the current book I'm working my way through is the Henry Ford story. But to your point about, you know, things being hard, I, I like to go back to those days when, you know, they didn't have power, they didn't have the modern luxuries, and they would spend years and years working. So for example, the Wright Brothers would go out to Kitty Hawk every fall and, you know, just keep practicing and trying and trying. And you mentioned the soundbite ecosystem we're in right now. How do you, as an entrepreneur, kind of keep yourself away from that sound by, you know, things that happen to seem very quickly and keep your head down on your mission? That's an excellent question. But before I answer that, I want to say, yeah, I read the same book on the Wright Brothers, fabulous book. And I, I suggested it to all of our staff because I said, here you go here. You know, we think we just, you know, they made a glider flew. And then next thing you know, we're, we're flying, you know, 747s. And, you know, they had to invent an engine to power that thing. And, and it's like, you know, it took them years and years to get there. So that's right on point. Um, but but back to your point is, you know, you can't really completely divorce yourself or pull away from the whole soundbite thing, whether, you know, you're talking to um, investors or you're talking to people that don't really know much about this technology or the whole chemical recycling arena. Um, you have to keep things short, <clears throat> keep things simple. Here we call it Peter Rabbit language, where, you know, it's got to be real basic, real easy to understand and real easy to grasp quickly, or you lose your audience, you know, their eyes glaze over and they're on to the next thing. So while, you know, the, the challenge, I guess, is really to take something that's complex and take something that's very involved and reduce it and distill it down to an understandable form. So, you know, like it or not, you know, people aren't going to sit there and say, well, gee, I've got a half hour. Tell me about this. That's not going to be it. It's more like, hey, I've got five seconds, grab my attention or I'm going on to the next thing. So I think that's that's kind of the the uh, dilemma that you always face. And I'm sure you do, too, in, in explaining things. It's, um, it's, it's something that's a reality. You know, absolutely. And I was so sad at the end of the book, you know, when I think it was Wilbur that died first, right? Yes, yes. And I think he was only, I think they mentioned in that book, he was only, I think, 48 years old. Uh-huh. And just how much they had accomplished within that short lifespan. Again, I was just fascinated by that book and I too have recommended it to many people. I think sometimes venturing back to those times and just realizing, to your point, I'm, you know, the Henry Ford book I'm reading right now too, is just fascinating. The idea of having to create an engine that could help them fly, you know, from scratch is just fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have a motor. Nobody had made a motor, an internal combustion motor that was light enough or configured right. So they, they made one in their shop and it's like, okay, so we, well, the airplane's just secondary. We got to get this motor thing figured out. Right. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing that things happen. Edison, exactly. same way. All the, all the great inventors, Ford, same thing. It's, you know, we, we take all these things for granted today and they don't come easily. Hard things are hard. Exactly. Now, you mentioned chemical recycling. Can you give the audience, and for those listening, it's going to sound funny for a moment here, but an overview of Nexus Fuels, totally different company than Nexus PMG. But can you give the audience an overview of Nexus Fuels and your role at the organization? 
I'd be happy to. So uh, Nexus is a company that was founded on the idea that we would be able to take waste plastics. And when we say waste plastics, these are the things that don't have a good home outside of their original use. So whether it be films, grocery bags, dry cleaning bags, things like that, a lot of containers, food packaging, most of that material today, almost around the world, Europe's a little bit of an exception, but is managed at its end of life by landfilling or in some cases, incineration. So chemical recycling and Nexus specifically was founded on the idea of being able to take that material that did not have a use in mechanical recycling. There's a lot of plastics, the water bottles and the detergent bottles and things like that, that do have an afterlife in the mechanical recycling arena that don't have, you know, the the other plastics outside of that they don't. They go for waste. Now, you look at uh, grocery bags, for instance, and they are often seen as having a lifespan of anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes. 10 to 30 minutes because you, all, you, you get it at the store, you put it in your car, you take your groceries out at home, and then what? Well, you throw it away. You don't have any other use for it. So back in 2008, 2007, I believe it was, I read an article And um, it's what really inspired this. And that was of a company that was in Switzerland that was making oil using waste plastic film, plastic bags. And I thought, I I can't believe that's possible. But as as a scientist and with a lot of chemical background, I said, you know, I guess it's possible. It's hydrocarbon and you're just reversing the the polymerization process. So sure enough, um, that's what can really happen. It's borne out scientifically. And I did a lot of research and all these other things that you do to start with, and really kind of from a standpoint of not really believing it could actually be true. And, and, and so Nexus evolved from that to a point today where we are a commercially scaled uh, 50 ton per day uh, facility. Now we've built our first generation unit And we are in the process of engineering and designing and actually starting to build now our second generation unit, which has taken all of the learnings. uh, We've run the plant now for about two and a half years. And during that time, we've had a great deal of, uh, let me call them experiences, (laughs) Uh, where things work, things don't work. We improve them. We tweak them. We make them a little bit different, a little bit better. And in the end, what what we get is we put in all these different plastics that were bound to the landfill. And we end up with, to date, we've made, I think, about 360,000 gallons of oil and wax product that is now used to make brand new virgin plastics. And so what we're effectively doing is we're recycling those molecules. We're not recycling the plastic necessarily. We're not grinding the plastic up, remelting it, and making it into the same thing. We're actually breaking the plastics down into their essential molecules, their hydrocarbon chains, and those things are then used to make new plastics. It's that simple. And they can be any number of different types of plastics, but that's what chemical recycling is. That is what Nexus does. And it's part of what we now also call a circular economy, where things can really genuinely be recycled in a circular manner. Use them, discard them, 
process them, remake products, and reuse them. And, and it can be done literally, theoretically, in an infinite cycle. So who's your customer for your finished product? Uh, we have two primary customers right now, and that is Royal Dutch Shell and Chevron Phillips Chemical. And they operate facilities uh, basically around the country. Uh, they're called crackers. And these crackers are designed to crack or break apart uh, various polymers, usually in the form of natural gas or crude oil, uh, and make chemical feedstocks of all different types. So what we do is we send our material to one of their locations that is equipped with the cracker style that can handle this. And they are currently taking our products, blending them in with their normal feedstock and getting, as a result, they're getting materials that are now made with recycled molecules. And since you mentioned feedstock, where do you get your feedstock? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Feedstock is probably the single greatest determinant into whether or not this technology will succeed long-term, where the facilities are going to be positioned. But let me give you a little spoiler. Yes, this can succeed long-term. And yes, it's a fantastic uh, thing for our planet and for our society to have it its, at its disposal. So we get our plastics from a variety of locations. We typically right now are sourcing what is called post-industrial or post-commercial feedstock as opposed to a post-consumer feedstock. And, and, you know, I'm sure your listeners are going to say, well, wait a minute, what, what happens to my stuff? I put it out in the curb, maybe I've got the blue bin and I put it out there. I want to see that get recycled. Well, we're getting closer, but we're not there yet. And for one simple reason, and that is contamination, is that a lot of times post-consumer materials have in them a lot of other things. And unfortunately, a lot of people treat their recycling bin as a spillover garbage can. So we get that. We get people that are, we call wish cycling, where they, you know, are put in the, that old sneaker saying, well, if I put this in there, I'm sure they'll find something to do with it. And they can recycle that as well. Very well intentioned. Unfortunately, when you're recycling on a commercial scale where those materials go, they go to a, what's called a municipal recycling facility, it's not viewed that way. They're after very specific things. They'll pull them out. The rest generally goes to a landfill. So um, we've had issues getting materials in from post-consumer sources, but we get our materials from various brokers and aggregators of plastic and what they do is they take in plastic from a lot of sources. They pull out what they need and what they want for a high value. And then they have the remainder that's available to groups like ourselves. In some cases, we also take uh, feedstock directly from some of the producers, some of the larger manufacturers that may have excess material or waste material that they, you know, prior had been running into a landfill. And so they, this is an option for them to have a less costly option than a landfill. And in fact, we have a, our financial model. Uh, we pay, uh, you know, a couple pennies a pound for our feedstock currently. So it makes it, makes it a win-win for everybody. They don't send it to the landfill, so it's not entering our environment in that way. We're not burying an extraordinarily beneficial resource from the standpoint of energy and chemicals, you know, there was a huge amount of effort that was 
taken to make that plastic in the first place and to bury it in the ground, we're taking this great resource and dumping it into the ground. We probably wouldn't do that with you know, aluminum cans too often, knowingly. We wouldn't take that with many of the other um, natural resources that we have and just dump it in the ground. So plastic is the same way. It's a very valuable resource. It's a very valuable commodity. And so we're just trying to save that. So again, <laughs> back to your question, I would like to add one more thing. And that is we are working with um, Dow. Uh, corporation, they have what's known as an energy bag program. And that program involves them making these uh, orange colored bags. They're basically trash bags. Um, And various communities around the country are experimenting with these. We have one here outside of Atlanta in Cobb County. And these bags are made available to that community. And people are instructed to take the plastics that they wouldn't normally place into those Uh, recycle bins and instead place them into these orange bags, which are then collected along with their normal recycle, but they're pulled out on that recycling facility. And then from there, they're directed to us. And so in that sense, we are taking some post-consumer material and it's a program that's just getting started. And, uh, you know, as we were talking, Raj, a little before the show here, one of the things that we try to do is to educate folks on how to recycle, what to recycle, and, and kind of how the whole system works and how it can be made to work better. And so it's been a real education to folks. Even, even when you are uh, recycling with a very specific intent with these orange bags, for instance, we still get in shirts and pants and shoes and Brita water filters and all these different things that people, again, want to see get recycled but they, they cause a problem um, at the time when we get them. So there's still education to go, but, but we're moving there. We're moving there slowly, but at least it, we're moving in that direction. It's a long Have answer you, to your short question. No, it's great. <laughs> Have you trademarked the phrase wish cycling? <laughs> Unfortunately, no, that predates us. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, what do we, we used to call it aspirational recycling as well, or, you know, oh, people like really just want to see their products you know, recycle. They, people, you know, they they want to recycle, as we've seen. I mean, people don't like throwing out garbage and trash. They know that you know it's it's a problem. So it, it's just that it's it's got to be done, unfortunately, with some with some structure around it. Plastics are categorized numbers one through seven. Which numbers do you use in your process? Great question. We use a two, four, five, and six, and the twos are your high-density polyethylene. Your four is what's called low-density polyethylene. Five is polypropylene, and six is polystyrene. So we can take all those. Now, you say, well, well what about the ones, threes, and sevens? Well, number ones are what's known as a PET. That's the acronym for it. That's the material that your standard water bottle is made up of. Um, the number three is PVC, polyvinyl chloride, and that's a problem uh, all around. So is the PET. Two things is that neither PET or PVC, the ones or the threes, make oil. They make other things, but they do not make oil. They don't make wax. Uh, I like to say they make trouble <laughs> because when we put them in our plant, what happens is they break down into various chemicals that can do several different things. They can clog the piping up. They can also, when PVC breaks down under heat, which is what this process involves, they 
break down into hydrochloric acid and a couple of other chlorinated materials that are not desirable. It can do two things. It can damage equipment. So it's a hot acid. Um, and it can get into your finished product, your oil and your wax. And that causes a problem downstream. I mentioned earlier, our offtake partners take this material and put it in their equipment. Well, they have to have very, very low chloride levels. And that polyvinyl chloride contributes to that. So we try to keep that out at all costs. And then last, last in the bucket, there is a number seven. Now, number seven is kind of a catch-all that uh, takes in all different kinds of plastics that don't fall into those other categories. And things that are like nylon, for instance, falls into that category. Polyurethane, polyester, polycarbonate, like plexiglass, things like that. Those all fall into that number seven category. And like the ones and the threes, they just don't make oil. And, you know, as a bonus, they make things that are harmful to the process. So we really try to keep those materials out. And not to sound like it's being, a, you know, very restrictive and we can only take a small amount, but a vast majority of the products that are going to landfill that are called plastics uh, are generally the uh, polyethylene and a lot of it is the number four. It's the, it's the film plastic. It's the sheet plastic. And so that's, that's your categories right there. I appreciate the in-depth explanation. Now, going back to the process for a moment, and obviously without giving away any trade secrets, can you walk us through technically how the plastic gets transformed? Sure. I'd love to. And I'll try to keep this relatively straightforward and simple. So we have um, a process that starts. We get bales of plastic. And these are you know, weighing anywhere from 800 to 1,500 pounds. Uh, it's a big bale of plastic that comes in the trucks. That's how they get it to us. And we break those open and we take a quick look and make sure there's nothing in there that's going to be a particularly harmful. Things like big sheets of cardboard or paper or a bowling ball or transmissions, as we have found in the past. Uh, we then take that plastic and we load it into the uh, front end of our system. And it's, we have a series of conveyors and a series of shredders that we use. And it breaks that material up. It tears it apart. And then we bring it up onto what's called a sort line where uh, we have a couple folks that are watching up there as it goes by in a conveyor belt. And they're keeping their eyes out for anything that we don't want. You know, zip ties because those are made of nylon. We don't want rubber bands or pieces of wood or pieces of metal. From there, the material goes under a... Uh, magnet where we are pulling out any iron material, any ferrous material. And then it goes to a secondary shredder where it's brought down to a really pretty small, fine, kind of fluffy mix. And um, that's the size we need to have to feed it into the next section of the plant. So from there, we feed it into a series of extruders. And extruders are simply machines that take solid plastic and melt it. That's all it is. And then it pumps it at the same time. So it's, if you can imagine a tube with a screw in it, and that tube is then heated up. And as the plastic moves through that tube, because the screw is turning it, uh, it's melting. And it's getting less solid and more liquidy. And it comes out of that extruder kind of like toothpaste, uh, that kind of consistency. From there, it goes into our what we call reactors. It's not really a reactor. It's just a, a big heater, <laughs> heating kettle sort of. And we stir it around and we raise the heat up even higher to where it needs to be. And, and what happens in that reactor then is the plastic starts coming apart. It, it starts breaking apart. 
essentially what we're doing is we're taking um, heat and using it like scissors. And we're cutting up these long chains, these polymers of plastic, and we're, and we're snipping them up into smaller and smaller, smaller chains. And as they get smaller, what they tend to do is they'll come off, if you can think of it as boiling off, for instance. Um, it comes out as a vapor. And at that point now, it's very easy. All we have to do is cool that vapor down. And what comes out then is wax. We cool the first cut we call coming off there as wax. That's a heavier things. These are the longer chains that came out. And then we have an oil cut that comes out. And those are the smaller things. And, and that oil is just like oil that you'd see. We call it synthetic crude oil, but we can make gasoline out of it. We can make kerosene out of it. We can make diesel. If we wanted to make a fuel product, we don't want to do that. But that that's the, the liquid products that we, had, what we collect is the wax and the oil. Now, we also get a gas product. And that gas product is something that everyone should recognize as propane or even natural gas. We get both of these things out of our gas and it's made from the plastic. Those are the lightest compounds that come out, but we recapture all of that. And what we're doing right now is we are using that same gas that the process produces to then go back and heat the reactors to basically drive the process, drive the temperatures that are needed to do this. So we have the front end, which is processing all the, all the incoming plastic, the middle section, which is melting it and conditioning it, and then the back section where we are making the oil, making the wax. And then from there, we just put it into large storage tanks like you, you've seen. I'm sure everyone's seen them on the side of the road. And they, um, from there, go to the trucks that come and pick, us, pick our material up. They are tanker, standard tanker trucks that pick up both the wax which is hot, it's in a liquid form, and the oil. And uh, within a one-day drive of the uh, receiving facility with Shell or Chevron Phillips, then um, it's transferred from there. So it's really, as we said earlier, sounds like a pretty straightforward, pretty simple process, but uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to do. Um, the inside of that reactor is a very carefully engineered and, and specially designed system. And you know, we, we have all kinds of different things going on in there. So it's, uh, it's a little harder than it sounds. But that's, that's the basic layout. Well, the last part of the process sounds an awful lot like a you know, regular distillation process. It is. It exactly is. We, we, it, it's similar to distillation, but it, we were not applying any heat to distill it. We're simply condensing it. So we're using basically coolant. Um, and, and the reason is, Raj, is because... When we first started this, the idea behind it was to make something that was extremely energy efficient. And, and not only because, you know, we're kind of morally obligated to do that, but because to be, you know, economically viable and to be here, you know, next year and the year after and the year after that, you have to have something that's going to be very energy efficient. So, um, you know, we, we have a, a term that we call the energy return over energy invested. And that's EROI is the acronym for it. And we did a, we had actually a third party engineering firm come in and do some measurements on our system. And they determined that we get for every energy unit we put in, in other words, every heating unit, whether it's electricity in the extruders or gas heat in the reactors, um, we get about 35 to 40 energy units out. So in, in, in other words, if for every BTU or for every kilowatt that we put in, we get 35 to 40 out. 
in the form of our oil product. And you might say, like, wait a minute, how does that work? That sounds like, you know, you're creating energy. Well, we're not creating energy. Remember what I said was we're simply uh, taking these scissors known as heat and we're chopping something up that already exists. We're not having to apply very much energy to put that plastic back into a form where, once again, it has all that high energy uh, value and high chemical value. So that's, that's what that is. Well, speaking of energy efficient, I don't want to gloss over that the one piece that you mentioned, and I want the audience to really like pay attention to this, is the capturing of the waste heat. You know, there's such a movement right now to be able to capture industrial waste heat to use in the manufacturing process. So I just wanted to point that out for a minute. Absolutely. And and one of the one of the things that we've actually added <laughs> to our system um is a way to capture that heat and we're using it now towards the front end to help dry out some of the incoming plastics. And and if you can imagine this, when these bales of plastic are made, you know they're pretty big. They're they're maybe 6 feet by, you know, maybe 3 feet by 3 feet or something like that. And people don't want to store them, you know, they don't have a lot of room in house, so they put them out in the back lot until they have a truckload. Well, it rains. And what happens then is that water kind of seeps in there and it gets into all the nooks and crannies in that bale of plastic and it stays there. It can stay there for years. We get the plastic and if we put that wet plastic into our system, it tends to not do as well as we'd like. And the reason is because when it goes into that extruder that I mentioned where that plastic is first heated up, well, what do you do when water heats up? You get steam, right? So we don't, we creates a lot of pressure in that extruder and we don't want that. So what we're able to do is take some of that waste heat, direct it across that plastic as it's being prepared. It's an additional step, but we're using that heat and we're getting some value from it. And we're drying our plastic. We're driving off the moisture. So we're, we're trying to capture all of that. Well, it sounds like a very, very impressive system. <laughs> well, it's, it is. it's it's it is. I guess it's the only way I can say it. I, I don't mean to be boastful here, but it's, no, no. It, it's a system. It, you know, it, it's, it's been uh, modified a lot and things like that. But the, the next generation system, it's... Uh, it's it's going to be really something to something to see. It's where we got some high hopes for that. Well, I look forward to seeing it. So I'm going to switch gears here, get to the crux of our conversation, which is the why behind what you do. But again, I'm going to start off here with, I was, again, in my research, I came across a quote of yours again. It says, the goal to make the planet a better place. Now, earlier you also mentioned being morally or feeling morally obligated. Where does this drive come from? <laughs> well, you know, that's hard to say. I think, you know, every person's an individual and every person has a different uh, set of, you know, moral guidance, I guess. I, I just think, you know, when I, when I was a, a young, young kid, I, I grew up kind of in a rural area and I guess just developed a deep appreciation of the natural world and animals and plants and everything like that. And it sounds kind of trite and cliche maybe, but I just, I really feel as though as humans, we are here as stewards of the planet. It's not ours to exploit or take advantage of, but I feel, and this is just my own personal opinion and belief, is that you know we're here to take care of this planet that we've got. It's the only one we've got right now anyway, um, and, and make it as good as it can be. And whether that means making it uh, better or whether it makes it, you know, 
hopefully we're not doing so well right now. So we've got a lot of work to do. But I have just felt that, um, you know, that that's kind of where it came from. It's just a deep sense that we are privileged, especially in this country, to have the standard of living we have and to have the lives that we've been given the privilege of leading and and not doing something with that. So I feel in, in some ways that's a moral obligation on the part of us as a society and just as humans in general. Um, you know, we have a very high view of ourselves as, you know, the apex of, of development here. But, um, you know, I, I just feel that, that we have to give something back. And, and that, that's really kind of what, that, what that's about. Jeff, I appreciate your answer regarding the why behind what you do. But one of the things that stood out to me was you said, you know, we as humans should be better stewards of the planet. And I understand that's your own personal opinion. And I agree with you. But being a steward of the planet is absolutely admirable. But taking your future into your own hands and being an entrepreneur to do that is a whole different set of actions. So what drove you to do that? Well, I, you know, I have to say, Raj, I don't think I was necessarily driven to do it. I think I was given a gift in many ways. I mean, I, for whatever reason, um, you know, had the upbringing and, and the environment that I was in and the family that I was in and the educational system I was in. And, and I was just afforded the opportunities to, to learn and to explore and, and do so, uh, I think, without a lot of limits, really. I mean, except for those that I put on myself. So, um, you know, I, I think it was kind of a uh, situation where just as a, as a person, as an entrepreneur, I guess, you have to have the mindset to, you know, I guess, recognize opportunities. Most of the time, you know, <laughs> there's a great saying, you know, most people don't recognize opportunities because they're disguised as hard work. And, you know, hard work <laughs> is something I've never been afraid of. And I think most entrepreneurs are fall in that same boat, as do, as do many, many other people, of course. So, you know, to answer your question, what, what drove me to do this, it was just I was given an opportunity and I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time um, to have that and to be able to then explore that possibility and explore that opportunity. And that's kind of the way I've done it with, with my other companies as well, where, you know, it's just been a situation where you say, gosh, there seems to be a need here. And I, you know, is anybody doing something about this? And you look around and, you know, sometimes you say, oh yeah, they, they're, you know, Tesla's building an electric car and, you know, we got a couple companies that are going to space now. So I'm probably not going to get into that, but, uh, but then again, so you might choose that. But in my case, I recognized there was a need <laughs> and I felt that I had the uh, resources and the experience that I might be able to actually have an effect. And I think, you know, again, I, I keep giving you these long answers to fairly straightforward questions, but you know, what drove me to it was simply, I was given the opportunity. I felt I had the ability and resources to, to do something about it and therefore, you know, took that leap. And, and that's the story with any entrepreneur that is going to do something is to affect change. You have to take action. And 
you know, you'll, you'll never, you'll never hit the ball out of the park if you don't swing. And, and so it's, it's that kind of thing. You got to try and, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out, but you learn something from it. You know, experience is a wonderful teacher. Failure is a wonderful teacher. And um, when you look at things, not as problems, but as challenges, it also enables you to do that leap more easily. Well, speaking of experience and your journey of exploration, What's the most valuable lesson you'd say you've learned about yourself? <laughs> Boy, that's a good question. Most valuable lesson about myself. I would have to say I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm surprised at, at uh, uh, how much I can, I can take on and still keep going. <laughs> I think my, my wife tells me that all the time. Like, I'm like crazy. I keep doing these things. Um, but I, I, that's, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons. There, there, the, the lessons are, um, you know, you, you find out what you're made of. You really do. You, you, you find out that you have the perseverance, you have the stamina to um, do these things, or you don't. And, and sometimes, you know, there's, there's battles that just may not be worth fighting. And, and you have to somehow figure that out or, or not. And, and so there's, there's, some, there's some wisdom to be held there. Um, you know, I, I think it's just also the, a big lesson that I've learned is just the incredible complexity. And it goes back to what our earlier discussion was about hard things, but the incredible complexity involved in uh, growing a, a business that, that literally can operate on a global scale. I mean, it is, it's, it's all, it, there's still some uh, doors and windows that are opening for me in terms of, wow, I never knew that. I never knew that. Um, and, and I'm not a, I'm not a young guy anymore. And, you know, I would have thought I'd seen a lot, but there is a world, there's a universe of things out there that people are expert in and excel in and that, you know, that just take a long time to develop. And, you know, they're, they're all out there to learn. They're all out there to, to experience. And it's, you know, it's also a lesson that I've learned about myself is in terms of, um, you know, understanding and assimilating the idea that you cannot do everything yourself. You cannot control things the way you might always like to. And that's been a lesson. That's a lifelong lesson, I think, for people, especially entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs and founders oftentimes have a great deal of difficulty, and I'm in that group, relinquishing uh, responsibility and relinquishing control over certain things because, you know, <laughs> there's no one that's going to do it as well as you are, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in some cases, that's true, but in some cases, it's just not. And you cannot do everything that is required to build a large-scale successful business. And so you have to release some of that. And so that's been an ongoing lesson that I've, I've started down that path years ago, and I'm, I'm still traveling it, where, you know, just feeling comfortable to let other people handle things. Uh, that's, that's probably when one of the more valuable lessons I've had to learn. Well, speaking of traveling, let's fast forward into the future. It's 2030. If Business Week, Newsweek, Forbes were to write an article <laughs> about Nexus Fuels, what would you like it to read? What would I like it to read? That we, we made a difference. That's what I would like it to read. That's in, 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 a, in a short sentence, short phrase that, that, by being here, Nexus actually made a difference, and they improved, you know, the quality of life. They include, you know, improve the quality of our natural environment by helping to remove a, you know, a scourge on the planet, which is plastic pollution. 
and, and you know, obviously it's not something we can do by ourselves, um, but it, we could, we, we've made an impact in that crusade. And Jeff, while I love the idea of making a difference and making an impact, I took a note down yesterday that you currently process 50 tons of plastic a day. Is that correct? Yes. Now, that's the, the rated capacity of the system. We, have, uh, we operate a little bit less than that right now. It's a, it was a, it's a demonstration plant, but the version 2 plant that we're designing and soon to be rolling out will do that and more. Well, let's, why don't you and I have a Babe Ruth moment? Point it out there and say 2030, how many tons per day? Oh, we're doing, well, let me just think, per day. I got to figure this out now because I don't have that at the tip of my fingers. Well, let me just put it this way. We, we expect to have probably by 2030, I expect we're going to have anywhere from 70 to 100 uh, modules out there, hopefully twice that, um, each module doing 50 tons a day. So uh, if that gives you an idea, we, we've targeted a five-year goal of, of 1,500 tons a day, but we've, we've amped that up considerably based on the needs and the stated goals of some of our uh, current and hope to be future partners in this, that they, they want more than that. So we are embarking on an endeavor here to make our systems very modular so that we can uh, build them very rapidly and deploy them very rapidly. And that's, that's a huge challenge from a manufacturing standpoint, but it's something that's going to be needed and something that there is a strong pull in the market for us to do. So the Babe Ruth moment says, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say 3,000 tons a day to start and probably up to 5,000 tons a day. I look forward to seeing it. <laughs> so, <would I. laughs> so last question, and you kind of tucked in some advice here with delegation, but if you could share some advice, words of wisdom or recommendations with the audience, and it could be personal, professional, entrepreneurial, what would it be? Stay curious. I think that would be the, my, my advice to anyone in, in almost any walk of life and in any professional endeavor and really for any kind of personal growth. Personal growth comes from exploration. Exploration comes from curiosity. And you know, children have that curiosity. And as adults, we tend to see that fade to a great degree. And, you know, everyone gets kind of, you know, disillusioned and I don't want to say beaten down, but, you know, life has a way of, you know, imposing its reality on you. So I would say, try to keep that curiosity, try to keep that spark of interest because there is so much in our world, whether it's the natural world or the business world or your relationships that deserves to be explored. And there's, there's great, you know, joy and great pleasure and great satisfaction in exploring these things. You know, as a kid, I'm sure you, and I know myself, you know, we always, you know, we're going off to whatever adventure in the neighborhood, you know, and that was, that was a journey of exploration. It doesn't have to change as an adult. So I would say as a recommendation, stay curious. Jeff, as much as I love the idea of stay curious, I'm going to tell you what I've walked away from this conversation with. You said earlier when we were talking, the life of a plastic bag is between 10 and 30 minutes. And I want to leave the audience with that just for a moment. Just think about it when you go to the grocery store next time, that the life of that bag you're using is 10 to 30 minutes. And just changing a small habit like that can make a huge difference. Absolutely. Jeff, I really appreciate your time today. I look forward to the continued success of Nexus Fuels and catching up with you again soon. 
Very good, Raj. Well, I've greatly appreciated the opportunity. I, I feel very uh, honored to have been asked these these questions and have you allow me to answer them. So it, it's been a great honor and a pleasure on my part. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.